Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Liz McKinney is a registered dietitian and an author for NutriSense, a company that uses continuous blood glucose monitors to track blood sugar. Liz received her Master of Science degree in Clinical Nutrition and Integrative Health in 2017, and is is a board-certified nutrition specialist, as well as a licensed dietitian nutritionist. She had worked in private practice, counseling patients in a wide array of health concerns, before coming to to Nutrient Sense to, b- to pursue her interest in helping patients achieve optimal glucose tolerance and metabolic health. In her time as a nutritionist, Liz has educated and counseled hundreds of clients in areas such as weight loss, hormonal imbalances, and gastrointestinal diseases. Her approach is rooted in an attendance of functional medicine, and she strives to get to the root cause of the issue instead of simply putting a Band-Aid on symptoms. She realizes that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to achieving optimal health and feels it is crucial to be in equal partnership with her clients. In her free time, Liz loves to backpack and hike with her dog, Trevor. Liz McKinney, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Oh my gosh, Casey. I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this for several weeks. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, such an honor to have you. I stumbled through your introduction a little bit. And that's where I want to start my (laughs) questioning, actually. Um, I was not aware of this until I heard you on a podcast you did recently talk about this, a board-certified nutrition specialist being different Mm -hmm. than a dietitian. What is exactly the difference? Honest question. Like, I really don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I get this question quite a bit. So registered dietitians uh, have a four-year degree in dietetics. They go through an internship and then they are registered through the commission uh, for dietetics and they can practice anywhere in the U.S. So uh, for a long time, there was quite a lot of red tape on who could practice nutrition in different states. There were a lot of people who would say like, oh, I'm a nutritionist and kind of just put their shingle out. They didn't have a lot of training. So this is actually changing in quite a lot of states. So a CNS, the Certified Nutrition Specialist, does require um, a master's degree. And it also requires that you sit for a board exam. So you're certified as a nutrition specialist. Uh, You do an internship where you have like a practicum and you uh, get your hours in sort of like an internship. Um, but it is a really nice pathway for those of us who are second career, myself. So I decided I wanted to go back into nutrition after I had already completed my four-year undergrad, which was in media studies of all things. So nothing even similar to this, but just felt very, very drawn to this. And so I went back and got my master's in a program that allowed me to do all my prerequisites in, in my science classes that I, that I missed in my in my undergrad Uh, And so now I'm board certified and the state actually will also license a CNS as well, just kind of depends on the state. So it's really nice that there's a path for licensure in a lot of different states. Um, And I will also say that the CNS training tends to be a little bit more holistic in nature, a little bit more functional medicine minded, if you're familiar with that term. So really just again, that we're not, we're not really promoting the food pyramid, right? We're not really pushing a certain diet. And I think that was really important to me is that when I was thinking about how do I want to practice, who do I want to work with? uh, I wanted to work with people that wanted to be there, want to take charge of their health, really kind of proactively, and that I would have sort of the autonomy to, uh, and the flexibility to work with people wherever they were, however they were coming to me. 
uh, without pushing something specific. Yeah. So that's amazing. I yeah. love that explanation. I'm always curious about that. I am a nutrition yeah. coach, which means I got yeah. an online certification. It was a big textbook, but it wasn't a master's degree. I also studied something <laughs> different in college, never even graduated, but I was studying architecture. And it's it's so interesting. There's something about this like world of health and fitness and in, and in particular nutrition. If it gets mm-hmm. you, it just grabs you and you become totally obsessed with it. It sounds like that was exactly yeah. the same case for you. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, it was sort of, you know, as I joined the workforce and I was working in an office and you just kind of realize how how people, how much people are lost in this space, uh, especially in this age of information. They're just being pulled in so many different directions. And it's, I think it's very hard to wade through all this noise. You know, it's, it, should I do keto? Should I do carnivore? High protein, low protein? Should I be cutting calories? What kind of exercise should I be doing? There's what supplements should I be taking? And I think people go turn to the internet in a lot of cases for this information. And it's, don't get me wrong. I love the the age of technology that we're in, that all this information is at our fingertips, but I think it can very much confuse people. And I think sometimes what that does is it, puts people in this analysis paralysis, right? So they just don't even know where to start. They don't know where to begin. And so they do nothing. Um, And so to circle back around, you know, I was seeing these people who were, you know, complaining, oh, I can't lose weight. Oh, you know, like it just, it used to be so easy and now it's not, or I just don't understand what's going on. I don't feel like I'm eating very much. I'm exercising all the time. And And I was kind of thinking, you know, there has to be something else going on, right? There's something underneath the surface that we're not getting a really good grasp on. And I think that's sort of what led me back into this, this field of nutrition is that I it's there's a plethora of information. It's so much. Um, And when we can apply that to an individual and really help them kind of understand it, it's where the rubber meets the road. You know, we're not we're not promoting here's a piece of paper with what you should eat and not eat. It's all about that lifestyle change. And I think that's it. That's a great segue into like what NutriSense does is that we, it is this, we are all in N equals one. We truly believe that we are never pushing a one size fits all approach on anybody. And I think that's the beauty of having this data at your fingertips is that it is very personalized and it also helps to drive that behavior change that so many people struggle with. Yeah, no, that's great. That was a perfect segue. I was going to ask how you got involved with NutriSense in particular. So I was going to save this question for later in the interview, but I think I'm going to take the opportunity to ask it now. We definitely did say in the introduction, that's what you believe. There's no one size fits all approach. We have tons of people that come on our show that say exactly that. Everybody is so different. You really need a very individualized approach. We have other people that come on the show and they say we are different in that I have blonde hair and you have brown hair. It, it, the mm-hmm. variance is actually not that great. You have some preferences, but for the most part, the same principles apply. Where, where, where are you with your experience and working with continuous glucose monitors, which we'll get into, where, where do you fall on that scale? Yeah, I think prior to working at NutriSense and actually having that data to analyze and at my fingertips, I probably would have leaned more towards what you were saying, right? Where we're not that different, you know, especially in when I was in private practice working with people that have diabetes, you know, we would recommend, okay, uh, 30 to 45 grams of carbohydrates per meal, you know, try to keep them whole food focused and kind of give them a list of things they could choose from. And, uh, and being able to work outside of those guidelines. I mean, we actually do have significant research that looks at 
people who have vastly different responses to the same type of food. Um, and, you know, looking even at the, the CGM data too, gender, genetics, how much sleep you got the night before, what kind of stress load you're under, what your exercise is like, what kind of uh, muscle mass are you carrying? Uh, you know, again, where are you on in the hormonal spectrum as a woman? Uh, how late in the day are you eating? So all of these things, I, yes, they are something that we look at for everybody. But again, you can take five people, give them the same exact meal, and they will have vastly different, yeah. different with it. Wow. I love that answer. Thank you for that perspective. I really, really appreciate that. Obviously we're going to talk about continuous blood glucose monitoring before we do. I, we talk about CGMs all the time, but we don't often take a really high level look at metabolism and carbohydrate and, and sugar metabolism to begin with. So I think you'd be the perfect person to take us through some of the ways that our body uses energy, how we eat our energy, what happens when we do with it. Let's, let's talk about glucose metabolism and carbohydrate metabolism. How does that work inside the body? Yeah. So in the most simple terms, glucose is your body's primary energy source. I think when people think about carbohydrates, they think about sugar, but that's not really, yes, of course, sugar is a carbohydrate, but we know uh, honey, fruit, root vegetables, non-starchy vegetables, um, you know, grains, all of those things are carbohydrates. So I think that there's sometimes a misconception that people say, well, I, you know, I don't eat carbohydrates or, you know, whatever. And really what they mean is, well, you don't eat grains or maybe you don't eat refined starches or whatever it is. So I think we have to kind of say it's, it is, um, it's doing carbohydrates a disservice to put them in one bucket and say every, all the carbohydrates are the same. If you're low carb, you know, it's just about grams of carbohydrates. It's really, I think doing it, um, doing carbohydrates as a macronutrient, a big disservice, right? Glucose is our body's primary energy source. And I think I kind of like to akin glucose to a, a vital sign um, because it is so connected to every facet, every system in the body, brain health, mood, weight, energy, hormonal balance, appetite, all of this stuff is impacted by what's happening with your glucose levels throughout the day. Um, so when we eat a carbohydrate, it gets broken down into glucose. So you can think of glucose as that, that building block, right? So we consume them and then glucose is either going to be used for energy. So the first, what we, we kind of say is that your muscles are a huge sink for glucose. So as long as you have space in your muscles, your glucose is going to go there. Uh, so it will either get used for energy in the muscles, it gets converted into energy in the liver. Uh, and then when those storage sources are full, then we think about, okay, glucose then gets converted into fat, gets packaged up as a triglyceride, and it gets put in the adipose tissue. So I think that's where a lot of people consider, okay, well, when I eat carbohydrates or a high carbohydrate diet, that is going to lead to weight gain in some way or fat gain in some way. Uh, and again, I think it's very, that's very nuanced. Uh, uh, certainly, yes, people who struggle with weight loss, who have fairly severe, you know, obesity in some way or severe diabetes, uh, we want to take a look at carbohydrate consumption. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be on a very low carbohydrate diet. Uh, all macronutrients to some extent stimulate insulin. So insulin is the hormone secreted by the pancreas. Its job is, is an anabolic hormone. So it's a building hormone. And so a lot of people might be familiar with insulin. It, it got that fun little nickname, the fat storage hormone. Uh, and so people think, oh, you know, I eat carbs. I release insulin to combat those. And then the carbohydrates I eat 
immediately get turned to fat. And that's not really the whole story, right? So we need some insulin. It's kind of like Goldilocks. We don't want too much. We don't want too little. We want just enough to help us manage our energy. We also need insulin to uh, build muscle, right? People forget that a lot too. So people have this idea that, oh, insulin is bad. We don't want any insulin. Really, we do. We just want adequate amounts to do to manage our metabolism. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes when we think about, okay, you're eating a very high carbohydrate diet, maybe you're sedentary, maybe you're under a lot of stress, maybe you're not sleeping well. And so we kind of end up with this, this metabolic dysfunction that sort of progresses over time. Uh, so again, like those storage spaces I told you about in the liver and the muscles, that's glycogen, which is just basically chains of glucose in the body. Um, and so insulin's job is to, again, shuttle those, those, those nutrients into ourselves so that we can make energy. So the problem is, is that when we start to overactivate this pathway, okay, so when we overactivate this pathway, we have higher glucose levels in the blood, which consequently means we have higher insulin levels in the blood. And so then it becomes very, very difficult to lose weight. So insulin, again, acts kind of like a gatekeeper. And it's kind of what I would say, like you, you have a bunch of people in a room and imagine all these people in the room are your glucose molecules and insulin is kind of like at the, at the door and it's not letting anyone out. <laughs> so the room just becomes more and more and more full. Uh, and eventually then we have this overflow theory, uh, where we have high glucose levels in the blood, high insulin levels in the blood. And then of course we have that progression into, into severe metabolic dysfunction. That is a fantastic explanation. I think that was very well said about insulin. Any hormone is there for a reason. And we think cortisol mm -hmm. bad, you know, insulin bad, like, no, they, they, they need to fluctuate. They need times that they're high and times that they're low. It's anabolic. Like you mm -hmm. said, it helps us build. So that's really important in certain times. And, and look, like I'm a dude, so I do my bicep curls, my chest press. And I think like, well, I've got big muscles and like, <laughs> I, I must have tons of storage space for carbohydrates. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about what the actual, like how small those numbers actually are for most people and their capacity, even, even mentioning the muscles, the liver, mm -hmm. the blood, where we've got a little bit of blood glucose all the time. Can you still explain yeah. like how, how low that number still is? So the, I mean, the body has, it's very good at, it should be very good at tightly regulating how much glucose is in your bloodstream at any one time. I think it's several teaspoons worth of sugar in your bloodstream at one time. So, um, I mean, a glycogen stores will vary from person to person as a man, as a muscular man, you have more glycogen stores than I do, right? Just by, by maps. Um, and so you, we actually tend to see this, this interesting gender difference and women just get really, really mad about this, right? Is that, uh, we'll see this. I have several women members who say, my husband's also wearing the CGM and why can he eat this? And I, when I eat it, my glucose spikes like crazy. And when he eats it, he gets this little, you know, very nice glucose curve on his, on his app and, so we know there's a big difference. Um, it just in men have more muscle mass typically. Uh, so that has quite a bit to do with our, our, our glucose tolerance, right? The more muscle mass we have, the more active we are. Uh, energy, uh, muscle is a very metab metabolically um, expensive organ, right? So we're, we're going to be maintaining that um, with a, at a, our metabolic rate is just going to be higher when we have more muscle mass. So yeah. 
Um, that's why, you know, one of our common recommendations is that you move after you eat because we want to sort of open up that, that glucose base in those muscles so that it's not hanging out in the blood. And we tend to see that have a really significant impact in, um, in a glucose spike, helping to kind of blunt that. Yeah. I love that. It's an analogy yeah. I'll use. You can correct me at any point if, if you don't like this one, but analogy I'll use is like your blood is like the freeway. That's where things kind of go to move around and get traffic to certain places, it, you know, consuming a, a, a big bolus of, of, we'll say carbohydrates, any food really, but we'll say carbohydrate mm-hmm. is like, is like cars getting onto the freeway really rapidly. And insulin is the signal mm-hmm. that says, okay, go park in your parking spaces. And as long as there's parking mm-hmm. spaces, like you said, in the muscles and the liver, then you're fine. And and the, the cars will park. And when it's, when there's not enough cars on the freeway, then the cars can go out and get back on the freeway. And it's only mm-hmm. when, like you said, when everything is full and you overshoot the number of parking spaces you have, now you have to build more parking structures. And that's like just adding more fat, right? Is that a, a good way to explain that? Yeah. I love that analogy. Um, Jason Fung, I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. Yeah. Uh, amazing, amazing guy. And he has, he has explained it as a a fridge and a deep freezer, uh, which I also love that analogy as well. So his, his, uh, big push for fasting, right. Is that when we fast, we empty out those glycogen stores and we allow the body to start breaking down its fat stores. So when I explain this to people, I say, okay, you have a fridge full of food. You're not really ever going to need to go down in your deep freezer, right? It's a harder to access that food kind of stays in storage. Uh, but we kind of let your fridge empty out a little bit, right? And then you're more likely to be able to lower your insulin levels and kind of start to release some of that fat into the system. That's a great analogy. Jason Fung was so instrumental. I talk about this all the time in helping me understand why I was using metabolic carts on people that were mm-hmm. doing intermittent fasting and their metabolic rates were were bananas. It was it, like hundreds mm-hmm. of calories higher than what it should have been, yet they weren't eating that much food and they were fasting. I, I couldn't explain it. His work help me understand that. So yeah, I, I love yeah. that you went there with that. I think it's a great analogy. Yeah. He's, he's a really, he's a cool pioneer for yeah. sure. I, a lot of people I think have, have, uh, delved into fasting because of his work, yeah. uh, which I think if we have time to get into intermittent fasting, it's a super fascinating topic. Uh, I always like talking about that too. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. But. That's awesome. Can I take my analogy one step further? You mentioned the types of carbohydrates and how different they can be. What about the difference between an on-ramp on the freeway that has a meter or an on-ramp that doesn't have a meter? If you are eating something, you know, like we would say like a whole food carbohydrate, like a sweet potato or, you know, maybe some, some non-starchy vegetables, something like that. It's like you've, you're, you're metering the traffic that's coming onto the freeway. So yes, there's more traffic, but it's coming a lot more slowly. So it's a lot easier to kind of like manage that where if you go have Mm -hmm. you know a cookie and a bucket of soda that no meter is on that freeway so all the cars get on all at once is that fair to say yeah absolutely i you know and i think right when we look at glucose absorption uh right fiber plays a role food pairing plays a role so uh meal sequencing is is a super cool way to help balance glucose levels. We know that activates that GLP-1, which helps reduce the insulin glucose secretion, uh, helps keep appetite more stable. So we often will say, hey, like meal sequence, right? If you're going to have a carbohydrate, no naked carbs is a a fairly good rule of thumb. Uh, You want to try to pair that with something that's going to help blunt that glycemic response. And we know that protein and non-starchy veggies, they do a great job of that. 
but to your point, right, with a soda and a cookie, then we're, now we're getting into those hyper palatable foods. So they're very easy to eat. They're very easy to over consume. Uh, they're not giving us a lot of the empty calories, right? Not giving us a lot of bang for our buck there. And so we tend to be hungrier. Uh, we end up on this blood sugar roller coaster, which then increases our appetite, makes it hard to stop eating those foods. Um, and a lot of our processed foods are a good mix of glucose and fructose. Uh, and so when we look at fructose metabolism, that's a whole nother animal. And it, it reminded me when you said, Hey, this is a freeway and it's metered, you know, like fructose, it's on there. It's a highway to hell. You know, like you're, <laughs> there is no, uh, no stop gap there with fructose metabolism. So it goes straight to the liver, uh, and gets processed into triglycerides very quickly. So, uh, and also we tend to eat more. So we know that fructose will, um, kind of ratchet up appetite. Yeah. So a fantastic point. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So, so now we kind of understand the metabolism, um, of, of glucose in particular. Um, so it would be important to know how many cars are on that freeway. You live outside of Denver. You are no stranger to lots of cars on all the freeways all the time. But if I take a picture of the freeway and say, here's what the freeway looks like. And I don't tell you this is Sunday at five in the morning. This is Monday at 8 AM. This is Friday at 4 PM. If you don't know the context of what's going on, there can be vast, vast differences in this marker that is very, very dynamic. It changes all mm -hmm. the time. And so most people, when they think of blood sugar, they think of pricking themselves, getting a drop of blood and measuring, which that's nice. That's great. But can you explain the difference and the benefit between that versus continuous monitoring? Mm -hmm. oh, I love how you, what you said about taking a picture. So that is exactly right. So an A1C uh, fasting glucose that you might get from your doctor, they just don't tell us the whole picture. It is look looking at a snapshot in time versus watching a movie. And we just miss so much. Uh, there is no, at this point in time, like in our healthcare system, there is no measure for postprandial, so after eating glucose. So for people that have diabetes that are using a glucose meter at home, they're told, hey, if you have prediabetes, when you check your blood sugar two hours after eating, we want that under 140. Doesn't tell us anything about what happened in that first hour of eating, unless you go and you get an oral glucose tolerance test, which a lot of people aren't going to do. Um, they can be costly. And uh, they're also not in the real world, right? We're not consuming a bolus of sugar that that big, typically, uh, in the real world at one time. Uh, and if you have diabetes, then we want it under 180 milligrams per deciliter two hours after eating. Again, doesn't give us any information about what happened in that two hours. So we really do miss that those glycemic swings. So the rise and fall in our blood sugar after eating. Um, typically we tell people we don't want any spikes above 140, right? That is just increasing metabolic stress on the body, oxidative stress on the body. It's causing mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, it can cause quite a, a, a headache in terms of mood, energy, appetite. Uh, and so when we're, we're sort of monitoring this, that's, we know that the first sign of metabolic dysfunction is that you're having these spikes after eating above 140. And we miss that. Fasting glucose is impacted by so many things and it's really not a good a good indicator. We have to look at all of these pieces of the puzzle. We want to look at fasting glucose. Yes, important. We know that after it is above 90 milligrams per deciliter, we know that there are... 
um, outcomes that are more negative in terms of metabolic health, like risk for uh, cardiovascular disease and diabetes and, and all of that. But we also know that if you slept poorly the night before, if you happen to have a high carbohydrate dinner, um, you know, if you are under a significant amount of stress, that will all impact your fasting glucose values. Um, case in point, I uh, went and got my blood work done a couple months ago. They did a fasting glucose for me. It was 104. So that is inching towards what would be considered pre-diabetic, right? So they say, okay, we want it under 100. Okay, most of the time, conventional standards will say, I want your glucose under 100. And it's actually, it's raising. I've seen it under, mine didn't get flagged because their cutoff was 105. It just keeps getting higher and higher. So I, you know, if I wasn't, if I wasn't aware of the factors that can influence fasting glucose, I might be concerned about that, right? Okay, my fasting glucose is 104, that's high. Uh, I had had a hard workout the day before. I had not slept well. There you go. I Okay, that makes total sense to me why that would be higher. Um, the other piece that really bothered me about this is that I was still inching close to their threshold, right? 105 was their cutoff and I was at 104. Not a word was said to me. Wow. Not a word was said to me. Hey, hey, you're inching closer to this threshold. I got a phone call that said your values are normal. If you want to see your lab work, go in you know, your health portal and look at it there. So for the average lay person, at that point, alarm bells should be going off right? For, for most people. And they just think, my doctor told me I was fine. And I can't tell you how many times that's happened. Um, the other thing, right, when we look at A1C, uh, the range, 4.7 to I think it's 5.5 is, or 5.7. So if you get above 5.7% A1C, then you're pre-diabetic. That's a large range. There's a lot happening from a glucose variability standard between, between a, a 4.7 A1C and a 5.7 A1C. And so we're told, hey, this is normal and it's healthy and it's great. And we totally miss what's happening uh, throughout the day. Yeah. Do you like A1C as a marker? I, I hear really mixed results. Like from where you are as a registered dietitian, do you, do you take mm -hmm. much utility out of it? So I think when we're looking at A1C, it is, uh, right. So for, for people who may not know A1C, it's, uh, an average of what your glucose values are like over a 90 day period, um, on average. So it's basically measuring how much glucose is attached to the hemoglobin in your blood. And so it's saying, okay, for most people, the average life of a red blood cell is about 90 days. And so I think studies have shown A1C is maybe only reliable about 50% of the time. Uh, so it's useful for tracking your own progress over time, but I don't find it necessarily useful without greater context. So if all I have to go on is an A1C, okay, yeah, at least we have something to look at. But I also want, you know, a fasting glucose. I would really love for it to become standard practice to get a fasting insulin value because we know insulin starts to rise up to 10, fasting insulin can start to rise up to 10 years before we see that manifested in someone's lab work. Uh, you know, I would love to see uh, like triglycerides, HDL. We know that's a really great measure taking that ratio and looking at that. We know that's a great measure of insulin sensitivity. Um, and then, right, that CGM data where we can actually look at how many how many times a, a week are you spiking over 140? How can we optimize that? How can we improve that? 
you know, the the argument that there's no application for CGM use in, in a healthy population. Um, I don't know if you saw the, the study that came out in 2019 that looked at, I think it was like 150 non-diabetic individuals and they were a CGM for a, a week. And they found that 96% of the time, those people spent all their time between 70 and 140, uh, which is considered healthy. Uh, but uh, 30 minutes every day spent above 140 might be considered normal, but it's not optimal. And I think that's where the value of the CGM lies, uh, is that we have the ability now to collect this data that we traditionally had never been able to do before unless you were prescribed it by a physician. And so we get this amazing uh, democratization of data, which I love, like I love that term. I heard it on another podcast uh, recently. And it's amazing, right? We are now have this power and this um, agency to collect this data on our own and learn about it on our own without being first told you have prediabetes, you have diabetes, now you have to use this. Yeah. Uh, you know, today's normal person is tomorrow's diabetic unless we really like start paying attention to what's happening with our metabolic health because it's a sliding scale. We're all on the spectrum. Great, great point. Okay. I, I, I just need to clarify. I want to make sure I heard that right. This this study claimed that CGMs were not helpful for non-diabetics. Not helpful. Correct. Not that, that's helpful. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And so like a lot of people will say, like I actually, I just read a magazine article, you know, that said, hey, you know, using, using CGMs, it causes people to panic about metabolic health or get really, really restrictive around carbs, um, that there's really no benefit in people tracking their glucose because the body knows what to do and it's very tightly controlled and, and all this stuff. So um, it is, you know, I, everyone has a perspective and that's, that is fine. I just think that when the rubber meets the road, we just see such amazing applications for people that want to take control of their health and they don't want to wait until something gets flagged in their lab work. They want to know, Hey, what's happening in my body? What can I do to optimize? Um, and having that data, that's where that behavior change comes in because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't measure. And so to say that not using, <laughs> to, to not use a CGM in an otherwise healthy person, uh, you know, we can, on the flip side, you know, we have other research that says, Hey, healthy people, uh, healthy people that have normal blood work are experiencing these hyperglycemic events. Um, and if we can cut down on that, I mean, like Peter Atiyah doesn't want anyone going over 140 ever. So it's, uh, right. I mean, we're human. We spike. I ate cereal the other night and I was like, Oh, I, I think I'm immune to it. And I'm not. <laughs> I'm wearing a CGM. I'm like, oh, okay, I can't do that. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, there's a there's definitely a mixed um, mixed reviews on whether or not it's helpful. Yeah, and that, and I just yeah, that blows yeah. my mind. I I yeah, I've seen it. I've seen people do experiments with it. And and again, you mentioned all those other lifestyle factors, not just even nutrition. It would be helpful for all of us to see this information. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. Okay, so yeah. on that note, the good segue also, I was going to ask, who is this for? Because I think initially somebody might think, okay, well, I'm not diabetic. I don't have prediabetes, I don't mm -hmm. think. I, this really wouldn't benefit me. Can you talk about the people who are, in your experience, are seeing tons of benefit from using these? Absolutely. So um, we have people come to us who, uh, so typically, well, let me back up. So typically the only person who's going to easily be able to get a prescription for a CGM is someone who is on insulin. So whether that is someone in the type one community where they need that to be able to dose insulin properly, or you have 
uh, a severe progression of type two diabetes where you need insulin as well. Um, so those people are really the only people who are easily prescribed a CGM. So people who have pre-diabetes, the standard of care is exercise and reduce your carbohydrates. And just wait, so, and just wait until you are diagnosed with diabetic. Sure. Yeah, basically, basically. So a lot of times we'll get people who say, Hey, like, I'm not waiting around for this. Like I, I want to take control of this. Now I want to figure out what I need to do to lower my A1C or lower my fasting glucose or, or whatever it might be. Um, so we have a good amount of those people. We also have people that have diabetes. Uh, they just may not be on insulin. Maybe they're on oral medications for diabetes and they, they want to use the CGM. Um, we also have a, a good amount of biohackers, right? People who are just, again, that democratization of data. They're like, this is available to me. I want the data. I want the knowledge. I want to know what I need to be doing differently. Uh, and, and then we have, you know, people who, Hey, I want to, I want to lose weight. I I'm an athlete, right? There's great applications for people who are training in some capacity for something, uh, or they just want to figure out, Hey, what's my body doing when I'm exercising? When do I need to fuel during a long race? Um, so I think the applications are really endless. I mean, I I've worked with people who say I'm tired all the time. I'm fatigued all the time. What's happening, right? What's going on? And uh, so much, so much of the time, if we can kind of smooth out those, those glucose fluctuations, it makes a huge, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. That seems like a total no brainer. I love that. So talk about the device itself. How does it work? Where does it go? Yeah. How long do people use it and how does it interact? Yeah. Um, how, how are you getting the information from that? Yep. So the CGM is a wearable sensor. It does monitor your glucose levels in your interstitial fluid. So it is not blood glucose we're measuring. We're measuring glucose in the, the fluid around your cells. So sometimes we'll see people who will do a glucose finger prick, and then they'll, they'll try to compare that to the CGM readings. And there's just so much fluctuation. There's also a lag time. So from blood glucose to the glucose and in interstitial fluid, we know there's a lag time there. Um, you know, and then there's some variability, right? So the, the FDA does allow some variability in both the CGM and the glucose meter. So the, really the gold standard is that fasted glucose value from your lab. So the real value of wearing the CGM is looking at those trends versus that absolute value, because we know that that can shift, you know, 15% in, in either direction. Um, so the swings in glucose or those fluctuations are what we're really, really paying attention to here. So there is a flexible filament in the CGM. So when you apply it, it is painless. Uh, so you sort of have this little plunger, you put it on the back of your arm. So we use the Abbott Libre. Uh, so it goes on the back of the arm, like kind of in the tricep, trying to get it in like the fattiest part of your arm. Um, and what it does is this enzyme, it's called glucose oxidase. And the enzyme reacts with the interstitial fluid. So that fluid around your cells, it converts the glucose to hydrogen peroxide, and then it generates a current. And this is what is electronically transmitted to your reader. So we use like an NFC compatible app. So we basically, you have our app, you scan the sensor and it picks up your glucose readings. So uh, it's super cool. You get this continuous read basically uh, of this graph that just sort of shows you uh, 24 hours a day, exactly what your glucose is doing. Wow. Was this your first time explaining how that works? <laughs> really good no. for you. Really good for your first time. Not bad. 
Yeah, basically it's just a fancy chemical reaction, right? That uh that reads your reads your the glucose in your in the fluid around your cells. Yeah, decent job for your first time. I like that. I if you've, <laughs> if you've seen enough videos of people installing these, it, it it's almost a little funny. It's kind of comical because they'll they'll put it on and they'll be like this grimace on their face and then they'll yeah. kind of like they'll be like jump. they'll jump because of the sound, but then they'll be like, right. Oh wow, I didn't feel anything. Like you you think yeah. like I'm gonna have this giant needle in my arm and it just doesn't work like that. No, yeah, it is really painless. It is really painless. Um, which is 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 nice. And I think people are like, I'm gonna have like a a needle in my arm. And really it is, it's like that, it's it's a filament. So you don't really have a needle um, you know, in your arm. So there's like a puncture from the the plunger. So there's a puncture and then the sensor sits inside your inside like below your skin. So uh, but it really doesn't, it doesn't pinch, it doesn't hurt nothing. Yeah. So it's, I think that does that it's handy for people who don't want to stick their finger. Cause I've had some people who say, my doctor says I have to check my glucose in the morning and then two hours every time I eat. And then before I go to bed and they don't, they, you know, it's, Hurts? it's not so fun. Right? Your fingers get sore. Yeah, totally. Okay. Wow. And yeah. you mentioned, you mentioned the study that was done over the course of only one week. That doesn't really strike me as a long time. How long do you like to prefer that people keep these on? Yeah. So the sensor lasts 14 days. Uh, So we have, you know, subscriptions are varying lengths. I think that it's helpful to at least wear one for a month. So at least wear two of them. Uh, And I, you know, once you get a good idea, like how things are going, then it makes sense to kind of do it intermittently. So I think um, for a lot of people, they choose to wear it long-term. You know, I've I've had people wear them uh, over a year uh, because they just find it, helpful. It's comforting to them. And they also like knowing that someone is looking at their data. So not only do we have this data collection, but then we also have a team of dietitians and nutritionists who are analyzing that data, providing feedback to our members, and then helping them drive that behavior change. And so that accountability is a huge piece of that. Uh, When you have the data right in front of your face, it's very hard to dodge. Uh, so, you know, you might go and get your lab work done once a year and a lot can happen in a year. And if you're really not paying attention, uh, it's very easy to not think about it, right? Okay. Hey, I'm going to eat this piece of cake and you know, whatever, I don't feel it. It's, I don't see it on my waistline the next morning, you know, like nothing like that. So it's, uh, when you have that, that data, you're like, Hey, I'm going to eat this piece of cake and whoa, my blood sugar went up to 160. Maybe that's not a great idea for me to do that. We really do see like, that's where we, we see the behavior change. Okay. Gotcha. Now I speculated on this on a recent episode. Um, and I'd, I'd like you to confirm whether or not this would be a good idea. Would this be a good thing to do seasonally? Like my summer is vastly different than my winter behaviors sure. are totally different. Like would, would that also be a nice application? Maybe four times a year with, with three months in between kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. We have, you know, like the inner, you have the ability to wear them intermittently if you, if you want to, again, I, I think that it makes sense to have a good solid collection of what's going on. Um, you know, we don't want people to change their behaviors right away. When you first put this on, I want to see what you're doing. I, you know, I don't want you to be good. I don't, I want you to try everything because otherwise you don't know. Uh, and so I think that's the other thing when we're talking about that study, and I don't know that this is, this is, just my personal thought about this, right? Is that if I was in a study and they said, hey, wear the CGM for a week, 
Uh, and I, you know, I was, and they said, Hey, just eat normally, eat whatever you eat, do whatever you do. I might try, but I think that I would be a little bit more selective about my food choices. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I have a, an inkling that perhaps, you know, people were like, Hey, I, I gotta be good. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and I don't think a week is, I certainly don't think a week is long enough. Um, yeah. because you know, it's, the more, the more data you have, the better. Gotcha. So you mentioned the team of coaches and all the things that you guys do to help provide support for people. Could it also work for many people without a coach because the information is so dynamic? Do people tend to just self select and change their diet on their own because they're they're learning just from looking at the the curves? Um, Yeah. Do they kind of, can some people get away with like coaching themselves almost? So it, yeah, I mean, we don't force you to work with a coach. We, we certainly have members who are in varying degrees of savviness when it comes to metabolic health and nutrition and health overall. So I think that's the, you know, we ask people, Hey, rate yourself. How much do you know about glucose? How much do you know about health in general? What kind of coaching do you want? Because we really do want it to be personalized. We don't want to give everyone the same information because, uh, the value is different. Uh, So everybody gets a complimentary month of coaching for every plan. Every time you sign up for a plan, you get a free month of coaching. So, and then after that, it's like a paid add-on. So people can continue to, you know, get that feedback, continue learning from their coach. Uh, Certainly some people who say, hey, like this has been great. I loved this month. I learned a lot. And now I want to kind of go on my own and, and figure it out. So it just kind of depends. I think it's really comes down to personality and relationship with the coach and uh, I think that's where a lot of that rapport building comes into, you know, I think sometimes people join this program and they think, Hey, I'm going to get paired with this AI bot, you know, and uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times you'd be like, I'm not a bot. I'm a real person. You know, like I live in Denver. I like cake. You know, So <laughs> I think just kind of showing that humanity, uh, it goes, a, it goes a long, long way. Uh, and, you know, like most of my members now I've been working with for a long time. Uh, and, it's it's interesting the kind of relationship you can build with people. Yeah, very cool. cool. I love that. Yeah. Okay, so th- things you've learned along the way. Let's start with things that are very general that we could say, generally speaking, yes, we're all different, but here's some trends. These things in general are probably pretty good for most people. These things in general probably are not great for people. Things. What, what things have you all learned as a team by using these for as long as you have? Yeah. Oh, I love that question. That's so great. Um, so I think one area that I'll start with is uh, circadian rhythms. So your body works on a clock and we know that we are most insulin sensitive earlier in the day and less insulin sensitive as the day goes on. Uh, and so I see this fairly consistently. Now, again, the caveat of N equals one, there are some people that can get away with this. I would say the majority of people have a hard time processing carbohydrates late in the evening. So again, you might be able to eat a higher carbohydrate meal at breakfast and you'll be fine, right? Glucose looks great. And then you eat that same meal, maybe the next day at seven or 8 PM and it's a glucose disaster. (laughs) So we just tolerate carbs less well, the later the day goes on. So a lot of times we'll have people sort of almost practice some time-restricted eating and see if it works well for them. So I like time-restricted eating a lot better than just kind of this umbrella intermittent fasting, uh, because it, again, is aligned with our circadian rhythm. So we say, hey, eat the bulk of your calories, eat the bulk of your food during daylight hours. Um, to help align with that. And a lot of times we see that really help with, especially people who want to lower fasting glucose, or maybe they're just like not sleeping very well. 
um, you know, that, that really tends to help lower those overnight values. And, and especially for people who are working towards fat loss, uh, there is no surefire way to know that we're in a fat burning mode. So I think that is disappointing to people, right? They're like, I want to wear a CGM. I want to know, am I burning fat for fuel? And there's really at this point in time, no way to know that by looking at your glucose data. Uh, we can infer that when your glucose is high, because that's the body's preferred substrate, that you're not burning fat for fuel, right? Because the body is trying to handle the glucose that's in the bloodstream. Um, so that can help too, right? We see lower overnight values. That kind of allows your body to use stored energy for fuel versus trying to, to lower what's what's hanging out in your bloodstream. So I would say that's a huge one. Um, I would say the other thing, right? I mentioned this a little bit um, earlier is about like no naked carbs. So um Someone eats a banana, nothing really there to slow down that glucose spike. So when we see, then we say, okay, hey, you did this. We saw this result. Let's tweak it. So we never say just because you had a spike from something does not mean that you can never eat that food again, that you are carbon tolerant, whatever it might be. We can tweak this to fit it into your life. And I think that's like, that's my rebuttal for people who say when you wear the CGM, uh, you're, you're telling people you can't eat carbs. Carbs are bad. You have to restrict carbs. You have to go on a low carb diet. And that's really, you know, not true. Okay. It's just not true. Uh, we know that with, with solid tweaks that we can often help people tolerate the foods that they like. Um, so again, like a banana, Hey, let's have uh, eat it after a workout. Maybe you try to take a walk. Maybe you eat it earlier in the day. Uh, maybe you pair it with some, um, like a hard boiled egg or you eat it last in your meal or whatever it is. Uh, let's see how we can kind of figure out and, and tweak that. So I would say for a lot of people eating some kind of naked carb that causes pretty significant spikes. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and then I think the other thing too, is just being sedentary, um, after meals is, a is a, a pretty good indicator, right? We even know that you might've heard this sit sitting is the new smoking. So being sedentary, we know is just, um, it's a, a big predictor of insulin resistance over time. So even just standing up after your meal, walking around for five minutes, uh, I've seen that make a huge impact as well, because you're, again, you're, you're being active. You're kind of opening up that, that glucose storage space, uh, in the muscles. Yeah. So we call it a, a postprandial walk. It's, it's, I would say probably like a company, a company initiative, right? We, we work on Slack. And so you'll see people's statuses pop up postprandial walk. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's really funny. That's yeah, awesome. it's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Awesome. So that was all very well explained. I, um, let's see, how do I phrase this question? So we, we love the carnivore diet around here. Uh, the people that we work with seek us out to try carnivore. So they're already kind of like somewhat on board. Um, I know that's not yeah. exactly what you do. That's something that can be done. What happens yeah. to blood glucose after a meal that, that is like abstinent of carbohydrate? Do, do yeah. you see big excursions? Like, what does that look like if somebody did have a meal that was like just an omelet with bacon or something like that? Yeah. So typically, so when, when we look at, um, when we look at markers, when we're looking at a meal, so we, we look at certain metrics, right? We look at something called peak, which is just how high your glucose went. So we look at a two hour window from the time someone logs a meal to when the two hour mark hits. So we look at the peak, which is how high your glucose goes. We look at something called exposure, which is basically the area under the curve. So that's a good indication of how much insulin stimulation you had during that meal. 
We look at Delta, which is basically, uh, you, you might be familiar with this, but we basically want from the starting point your glucose was at to the highest level, we don't want that to exceed 30 milligrams per deciliter. So we want to try to keep that, that Delta less than 30. And then we look at recovery. So that would be, we want your glucose to come back to baseline by the two to three hour mark. So to your point, when we see somebody who's eating uh, like a higher fat or a high higher protein meal, we don't see a big glucose excursion. Um, now, all foods to a certain extent will... Um, will will cause a bit of insulin release. So I think people sometimes think, hey, I'm eating a high fat diet. That's a free food. I'm not stimulating insulin. We know that's not the whole story. And that's maybe a topic for another time. But protein especially will, uh, we tend to see actually a little bit of a dip. So if people have like a, a higher protein meal, but they don't have really any kind of carbohydrate with that, we tend to see glucose actually lower a little bit because of the insulin release to that meal. Um, the other thing we can see is maybe like a little bit more of a delayed recovery or like a longer time, right? Because people who are following carnivore diet are relying on protein, right, to turn into gluconeogenesis so that they can have some kind of carbohydrate. So we tend to sometimes see um, not very large swings, but perhaps a um, a more delayed response. So in that context, you know, if we, we know if someone's following a carnivore diet, we can kind of look at it through that lens and say, hey, you know, maybe instead of two hours, we're looking at glucose to come back down by the three hour mark. We know fat slows down the release of of glucose into the system. We know gluconeogenesis doesn't just take, like it's not immediate, like, like a carbohydrate source might be um, in terms of like spiking your glucose. So we really want to look at the overall curve. And typically if I see like a longer or a delayed recovery, but all of the other metrics are in line, that's less of a concern for me, especially when we're talking about a whole foods diet, yeah. um, like a whole foods approach. Cool. No, that's very well explained. What a cool amount of information that you can learn from all of this stuff. Talking yes. about all these other markers is just so fascinating. Okay, so we just covered some kind of general things. So now I'm going to ask specifics. Give, give us some examples of some weird things that you've encountered that is very highly specific to certain people. Like, what are some examples of that? Yeah. Uh, let me. So, to, so I know you're interested in carnivore. So I, I have, a, I think, a good example of a, a guy I was working with who was doing the. Um, the animal based 30, um, challenge in January, he was like all gung ho about it, super excited about it. And so he was, um, incorporating a lot of honey. Uh, so I know like, you know, Paul Saladino says, Hey, you know, like the low glycemic fruits and, and the honey is good. You know, we want some, some kind of carbohydrate in the diet. And he was having a really, hard, really hard time tolerating that at a dinner, he was adding this honey into his dinner meal. And then we would see this kind of glucose would go sort of sky high. And, um, you know, he was like, well, it's like, I'm, I'm carnivore. And you're like, why, why can't I tolerate just like a little, you know, a little bit of honey or whatever it was. And so we kind of experimented around with, he, he was doing pretty, pretty intense workouts in the, in the morning. And, uh, and I was like, Hey, you know, like instead of, um, doing your carbs later in the day, let's flip it. Let's give you some fuel to, to actually get your workout going, you know, like do the honey as part of your breakfast prior to your workout or post-workout, you know, we can do it both ways, try it fasted, try it as a, a post, a post-workout fueling. Um, and it works so much better for him. Uh, and I think his workouts felt more fueled. So I think there's a, there's a big case for carbohydrate availability, especially like in the low carb carnivore space. Um, and it, again, it's kind of down to 
how people feel when they do it too, right? It's uh, That's why we always want to say like, hey, are you feeling, do we need to tweak this? Uh, do you feel great during your workouts, even if they're fasted or when you work, when you eat beforehand or whatever it is? So I think that's what kind of allows for this, this experimentation within this data is that we, we do kind of frame it as an experiment. And I think that helps people sort of latch onto it as well because they don't feel like, hey, this is something I have to do forever and ever. It's let's try it. Let's see what happens. Uh, and then kind of roll from there. So um, that's that was a great a great experiment that that worked out well for someone. I have a lot of I have a lot of women who, uh, and I'm sure you have listeners that can relate to this. I have a lot of women who will eat a relatively whole food, low carb meal at lunchtime, and they get crazy spikes. And they're always very confused about this. They're like, I had you know, a small amount of beans or I had some fruit or whatever it is. And it's, I will, it's amazing. Nine times out of 10, when you ask them questions about what's happening, they are smack dab in the middle of their day. They scarf their meal down in five minutes. They're chasing kids. They're working. They're eating at their desk. They're multitasking, whatever it is. And then they're sedentary after eating because they're going right back to work. And I kid you not, I'm saying like, Take a couple deep breaths before you eat, shut your screen down, try to make your meal last 20 minutes. The rate of eating has a huge impact on what your glucose is doing after you eat. And it's when I say that to somebody, it doesn't resonate. They kind of gloss over and they're, they kind of think, well, whatever, like that's not true. But when you see it in your own data, I'm like, just try it, just try it, you know, and like try to take a little bit, of, a little bit of a walk after you eat. It's amazing the difference, night and day. Wow. Night and day. Wow. That's awesome. Wow, I'm so yeah. glad. I'm so glad the carnivore war, or the war, the carnivore wars actually reached you as well. The group of carnivores that said you should have fruit, and the other group, and they they seem to fight with each other all the time. That's a great way to explain it. If people want to do either mm -hmm. way, do it, try it, and see how you feel, mm -hmm. and then be strategic about the way you position things. You you might be doing it. And it might be fine for you, but you might just have the timing down incorrectly or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. There's so, it's so nuanced. It's yeah. so nuanced. But before you say this isn't working for me, there are 10 other things that you can try yeah. uh, to, to no. figure it out. You know, sleep is a big one too. I don't know if you want to dive into sleep at all, but sure. um, I, I see, see this as well. You have somebody who tolerates a breakfast nine times out of 10, just fine. They have a bad night of sleep the next morning bad, bad response to it. Wow. <laughs> so it's, it's crazy how insulin sensitivity can be impacted by, by sleep, um, impairment. And that's, that's, uh, quality and quantity, right? You have fragmented sleep or you're just not getting enough of it. We know that impacts it. And I think all too often, right. We are waking up after a poor night's sleep. We're groggy. We brew a pot of coffee and then we're kind of off to the races. And that doesn't really do us much good either in terms of the cortisol release, drinking caffeine on an empty stomach. There's a lot of interesting research coming out about that as well. Interesting. Um, and so you'll have people who say like, all I had to drink today was coffee and I break my fast at noon. So you, this is, uh, you, this is a, a very very popular way to do intermittent fasting is to drink coffee through the morning and then break your fast at lunchtime. Uh, and people will say, well, I'm, I've been fasting all morning. I'm just drinking black coffee and my glucose is just going up and up and up and up and up. <laughs> right. Wouldn't I expect this, my glucose to drop. Um, and so we have to, that's, it's a great way to track how well your body is reacting to caffeine, how well it's reacting to your fasting window, 
uh, so many nuances there. And sometimes, again, with just some little tweaks, uh, if people are willing, I will say that people fast, people who practice intermittent fasting uh, are very, they're very tied to it. They like it. They like the way that makes it, it makes them feel. Um, and so if you can get them to kind of buy in, and I think that kind of, again, speaks to the trust of the, the coach member experience. Uh, if you can get them to buy in and just say, like, let, let's just try it. Let's try having like a couple hard boiled eggs in the morning, right? Before, and then have your coffee. And it's it sounds so counterintuitive, but we see glucose come down from that. Like you eat something little, put something in your stomach before you're drinking caffeine through the morning and it can make a big difference, That's especially for women. I will say it's it's more, more, I see it more commonly in women. Interesting. Because our hormones are different. Yeah, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, whether or not somebody does carnivore, or they're doing whole foods, eating lots of plants, like that's totally fine. But you're right, like just to see so much variance, you know, person to person, different foods, different lifestyle strategies must be just just endlessly fascinating to check out and refine what you're doing and how you're working with people. What what is it? What is it like working with people when you're a nutrient? I almost said system, Nutrisense. Uh, yeah. What is it like? To, cool. <laughs> different company. Uh, what would it, yeah. what what is it like? Like what what's the benefit of choosing yours versus choosing another company? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so I think for a while, we were the only company that was offering some kind of coaching in addition to the data. Uh, and then there are some companies now who are offering some health coaching along with that. Um, I think that the benefit of using registered dietitians, certified nutrition specialists, is that this is our this is our realm, right? We can actually make these fine-tuned recommendations beyond just that coaching. So like, hey, what's challenging right now? What are your barriers? That motivational interviewing, which is like the hallmark of, of the health coaching, which is amazing. And we use it all the time. But I think really being able to say like, I I'm, I went to school for this, I'm registered in this, I'm whatever it, it might be, it makes a big difference. I think it adds this layer of, um, just a, a layer of, um, authenticity to it, you know, uh, and, and people, people really like that they get different coaching styles. We, we give our coaches the autonomy and the flexibility to work with members wherever they are. Um, which I think also is, is different. You know, we aren't pushing this, this agenda. We aren't pushing low carb, right? We're, we're, we're not saying you can never eat carbs. You it's bad, you know, all this stuff. Um, it's very much keyed into the member, which is exactly why we try to ask what's important to you. What's your goal? What can I do to get you there? And it really is about that trust. You have to build that trust if you want people to make behavior change, honestly. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. This has been such an awesome discussion. One more time. I am disappointed that there's not a one size fits all everything <laughs> diet for everybody. And that's what makes nutrition fun, right? This is what makes it yeah. really interesting and, and fascinating to talk about because there is so much nuance and, and so much going on here. So Liz, thank you again for spending the time with us today. Where do you want people to go to find you and connect with you and your work? Yes, absolutely. So our website is Nutrisense. Dot io it's n u t r i s e n s e dot io and that will take you right to our website um and my bio is up there you follow us on instagram we just started this new this super fun uh little tidbit on instagram called science tuesdays where i kind of do this fun little reel and like break down a research topic for people and like share a research paper 
Um, so if you want to see me on Instagram on Tuesdays, you can you tune in on, tune in on that. Uh, it's super fun. Um, I always, I always like engaging with people doing that. So, um, Instagram, um, and then our website, Nutrisense.io. And, uh, I feel like we just scratched the surface Casey. So I, I think, I hope we have a part two in our future here. Honestly, I it's the applications are endless. We could really, really do a, a deep dive. Yeah. Absolutely. Like I said, it's not bad for your first time. Maybe you can go out and like learn something and then maybe get excited about something maybe. And then, yes, then maybe we'll have a part two. No, this I know. Is- well, I'm a nerd. You know, like we could spend five hours talking about this. I, I love it. I love it. It's so fun to talk about. It really is fascinating. It and really you, is. You, I'm, I'm jealous of that part of your job and your career. You get to see all this data and work with people at the end of the day, which is the best part is, is getting to know somebody. And you're, you're right, like building that rapport and that trust with people is just so mm-hmm. awesome. Really helping them turn around their health and improve their metabolic health is so important, however they want to do it. So Liz McKinney, again, thank you so very much for everything that you do. Thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to join us today. And we really just appreciate you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. It was a pleasure. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. At the close of one year and the beginning of a new year, I just wanted to make sure to thank you, the listener, for all of your support and for listening to our show. 2022 was an amazing year that saw lots of growth with the podcast, but also came with amazing results with the people that we get to work with in our business, Boundless Body. We began our business during the confusion of the 2020 pandemic and opened up in July of that year. And we've been absolutely amazed with how things have gone. It was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of building the plane as we were flying it, but it's turned out amazing. We just absolutely love seeing our clients get amazing results. We love seeing all the great feedback and positive reviews that come through on Apple. So if you haven't already, please leave us a review there on Apple as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and impact the lives of people all over the world. We're super excited for 2023. We already have lots of great guests and topics lined up, and we have no intention of slowing down our releases anytime soon. (laughs) Also, feel free to check out our premium content, which we post on Patreon. There you will find our extended and unedited episodes, which we post on the day of recording. So you actually don't have to wait for the edited version of the podcast to release, which can sometimes be several weeks, actually. And on Patreon, you will also find the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. This was my special project this year, I really wanted to combine all the very best clips about one topic from our show to combine into extended episodes that take a very deep dive into a topic. I've created two separate topics as a masterclass that are three episodes each. One is all about the macronutrients, and the second is all about keto and ketogenic diets. That way you can get a fantastic education from some of our amazing guests in a format that can help you zero in on the topic that you are most interested in, something I'm very proud of and believe that we are sharing this content for a very high value. Remember that you can also book a complimentary 30-minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. And thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.